right. Well, good morning. Um, my name is Eric. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here, and I am grateful that you're here. Now, if you are just visiting us today for the first time, we have been in a series over the last month where we have been looking at the purpose for which we uh, feel God has called our church to focus on and run after. Um, and it's something that is not new this year. It's actually something that he gave us all the way back in 2016 and laid on our hearts that this is what I'm calling you to. And every year at this time, we just take a, a couple of weeks to stop and go, all right, let's refocus our trajectory and let's talk about what this looks like to actually live it out here as a, a community of Christ followers. And so let's go ahead and throw the purpose statement up on the board. And if you would, read along with me. Lighthouse Community Church is committed to making disciples who love God, love one another, and love our neighbors. So we are committed to making disciples. That is our primary focus. And as we've uh, kind of defined disciple is a committed, fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. We're not looking to make disciples of ourselves. We're not looking to make disciples of any one person other than Jesus Christ, following him, giving our hearts to him. But what does that look like? You know, how do we be disciples? Um, one of the things we recognize is that you and I are a lot like this light bulb. It's my favorite toy. And, and some Terry, Terry Moran, and why do you start laughing the moment I pick this thing up? <laughs> Terry Moran this morning goes, you know, Eric, I'm really impressed at how long that light bulb has survived in your hands. <laughs> what is that? Like, okay, so I'm like, dude, do, don't jinx it. One more service we got to get through. And then, yeah, I don't have a backup. So God, help this one. Protect your disciple. Um, so you and I were created by God to, to shine the light of his love into the darkness. But as we talked about a few weeks ago, we cannot possibly shine the light of his love apart from him any more than this light bulb can begin to produce light apart from being plugged into a power source. And so it's only once you take the bulb and begin to screw it tightly into the power source that it begins to, to produce the light that it was intended to produce. And we've been talking about the fact that the first and most primary step of being a disciple of Jesus Christ is actually being with him, doing life with him, allowing him to begin to seep into every area of our life, not just between 10 and 11.30 on a Sunday morning, and maybe if you're part of a life group for another couple hours during the week. Our desire is that we would recognize that our rabbi, our shepherd, the savior of our souls wants to be in relationship with us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And regardless of whether it's here in the walls of this place that we gather, in our homes, in our workplaces, at our schools, that God wants to be with us and be working in us. And it's only when we are plugged into him that we can even do what he created us to do. Then last week, we recognize that the second mark of a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ is somebody who loves one another. We were created to do life with one another. And so the thing I love about this light bulb is not only does it need to be plugged into a power source to work, but it's got this filament. And I, I love these old school Edison bulbs because that filament is long and it's messy the way it's just kind of twisted around there. And that beautifully symbolizes because what happens is you've got this copper wire that takes from the power and it, as it runs along there, it begins to naturally produce light. And the same thing happens for you and I. 
You and I were created not only to do relationship with God, but to be in relationship with one another, to do life on, on this plane. And the first thing that God identified in his good and beautiful creation that was insufficient, was not good, is the fact that the man was alone, that he didn't have somebody, a partner with him in creation. And so he created Eve, and we don't, we're not getting caught up right now on the man-woman component. We are simply pointing out the fact that we were created for community. We need one another to spur one another on, to love one another, to hold one another up, to forgive one another. All of these one another is found in Scripture. You and I were created for community, and it is within community that we begin to be shaped and refined as well as spurred on to be whom God created us to be. Um, so here at Lighthouse, the, probably the primary way that we facilitate and encourage community is in life groups. And life groups are, are smallish groups of between 8 and 16, sometimes closer to 20 people that meet in people's homes and here on the church campus throughout the week. The majority of them continue the conversation from the weekend. They're all about diving into scripture and praying with one another and being known. That is the primary way that we do life here. And as I said last week, and I will double down on this, if you call Lighthouse home and you're not currently in a life group, then you're missing out on the single best thing that we've got. And you're not fully engaged in the purpose and vision that we have as a church. So I'm asking you to seriously consider, and as somebody who has been shaped by my time in life groups, by the people that I have gotten to walk with that primarily came out of that, and then in my, my smaller kind of D group relationships, it is like, and I, I used this analogy on Wednesday night as we were talking about it in a group, it's like God takes the rocks that we are, imperfect and he sticks us into a rock tumbler with other people and begins to turn the crank and as our lives bounce off of one another we are polished we are refined we are made closer to the image that he created us to reflect all right so you were created to do life with god you were created to be in relationship to do life with one another but if that was our only purpose then at the moment that we give our give our lives to jesus christ the moment that our sins are kind of dealt with, or at least the penalty of our sins that separates us from our Father God are dealt with, then he could zap us into heaven where we can spend eternity worshiping him alongside everybody else who has given their hearts to Jesus. But he doesn't. Because in the same way that this light bulb is designed to plug into a power source and designed to have the filaments that do life on life, you know, that, that, that it's carrying that current and producing light... That is not the purpose of the light bulb. That is simply the way in which it operates. The purpose of the light bulb is to shine light into the darkness, to provide light. And if we just get caught up on it's all about my relationship with God, it's all about me being around other people who can make me a better person then we're missing out on the fact that God has actually called us to look beyond ourselves, that we have a purpose. And it is not simply to be in relationship with him and one another, although that is the only way that we can actually do it. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Chances are it's on page 1 or around there. And this wasn't in my notes, but as I got up this morning, I went, you know what? We need to start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. Sorry. Bella, that was for you. I, 
I have a love-hate relationship with The Sound of Music. I I played one of the kids in that play, and it has... Well, it's left fingerprints on my life, some of them a little deeper than others. (laughs) I don't own any Lederhosen, and if I did, you wouldn't see them. All right, so we are going to begin at the very beginning where God creates mankind. And let's look at the purpose for which he created us. In verse 26, after God has spoken the universe into existence and begun to create order from the chaos, and and he steps back and goes, it's good, it's good, it's good. And he makes this beautiful creation that is still at this point very rough and needing more order to come to it. He says in verse 26, Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Why, though? We we always talk about the fact that we are image bearers, but why did he create mankind in his image? So that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air and the sky, over the livestock and all all the wild animals and all all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image, In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And and what I want us to notice here is that God's creation of mankind is not solely so that he can have relationship with them, although that is certainly a part of it. And if you read the first two chapters of Genesis, God spends an inordinate amount of his time walking in the garden with his image bearers. But the reason he makes them his image bearers is so that we can represent him in the caring for the stewardship of his creation. Could God do it himself? He's God. He can do anything he wants. But he chooses to create representatives who will carry out the care, the stewardship, the the ordering of his creation. You and I were made to represent God. That is the purpose of our image bearing in him. But we saw last week how sin kind of worms its way in and warps Adam and Eve's ability to see themselves as image bearers. Almost like you're looking in a carnival mirror. It totally warps their perception of themselves. It causes them to become very self-conscious and they go into hiding. They begin to cover themselves up with fig leaves so that they won't feel quite so vulnerable. They hide from one another. They hide from their creator. And yet God doesn't give up on mankind as being his image bearers, his ambassadors. Just to kind of give you an idea of what this looks like. Um, you know, a, a king who is ruling over a, his kingdom would actually send representatives or emissaries to go and represent him in the far-flung regions of his kingdom. And those people would not have authority in and of themselves. But because they're the representatives, the ambassadors of the king, the rightful owner of that kingdom, their word is taken as if it is his word. The way they are treated, it's as if the person is treating the king. So if you are disrespectful to one of these ambassadors, it is as if you were being disrespectful to the king. And so God has said, you are my ambassador. You are my representative. He doesn't give up on mankind even though sin causes Adam and Eve to run into hiding. And so later on, he carves out an entire nation, the nation that we call Israel. And this, this nation, he tells Abraham, who is kind of the forebearer of this nation, he says, 
I am going to make you into a holy nation, into a, a kingdom of priests to represent me. He tells Abraham, I am going to bless you and bless all of your ancestors, but toward what end? I'm going to bless you in order to be a blessing to all of the nations. You'll be my representatives. Israel got the blessing part. They were totally good with that. The part that they had a hard time remembering is that they were blessed to be a blessing. And so they they tended to focus more on God shows us. We're special. God showers his blessing and his desire to be intimate with us. That's awesome. We're good with that. Oh, yeah, we don't want to have anything to do with you or with you or with you. And once again, God goes, you were, I called you to be a nation of priests, a, a, a nation set apart to represent me, and you're totally forgetting about that. So finally God goes, all right, I'll do it myself. And he sends his son, Jesus, the divine word through which God spoke creation into existence, that word that brought order from the chaos, took on human flesh and began to tabernacle or walk amongst us. And Jesus, more than anyone who came before, was the perfect image, the perfect representative of our Father God. And he walked amongst us. And if you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 8. Because I want you to see what Jesus understood his purpose in coming beyond simply dying on the cross to deal with our sins, which he absolutely did and was probably the the most primary reason for him coming and taking on human flesh. But I want us to see what he understood his life to be as he was doing it. So from time to time, as Jesus was walking along, he would make a declaration about himself. As he's, uh, you know, as they're doing ritual washings during one point, he goes, I am, you know, the water that brings life. You know, and if you drink from me and all that, you, you'll never thirst again. At, at another point, people are asking him to feed them. The crowds have shown up going, hey, give us something to eat like you've done before. And he goes, I'm the bread of life. If you eat of me, you'll never hunger again, right? And they're like, oh, we're not going to eat your body. And he's like, you don't get it. In this particular instance, when what, what we're about to read, Jesus is in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. It is a time to celebrate Uh, God's faithfulness in leading the Israelites through the wilderness on the way to the promised land and and where they were living in tabernacles or tents. Um, So they they would have a time of celebration. And remember, if you remember the, the Israelite journey, God led the people in a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And so one of the things that they would do during the Feast of Tabernacles is they would carry these big candelabras into the temple courts and they would fill up the courts where the people were going with these massive candelabras and they would stick candles in them and once dusk happened, they would light all the candles and the whole temple would just shine with the radiance of all of these candles. In a day and an age where electricity didn't exist, people who were traveling to Jerusalem would see this beacon up on the top of a hill, and they would know where they were going, right? And it, it, people described that as like this diamond that was shining at the top of the hill upon which Jerusalem was built. So Jesus is standing in the temple courts surrounded by these candelabras. I don't know if it was at nighttime when they're lit or during the day when they've been snuffed out, but he's standing amongst this forest of candelabras. And he says these words in verse 12. I am and the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I, not these candles, not this temple, not this place. I am the light of the world. I have come to radiate the light of God's hope. I have come to shine light of truth, to expose the the layers of hypocrisy and religiousness that has been laid down and, and covered over the heart of God. You've turned following him into a list of rules rather than recognizing that he simply wants your heart. I've come to expose that. I have come to shine as a beacon of hope, to lead weary and and lost travelers back home, back to their Father who loves them, who created them, and wants nothing more than to be reconciled with them. I am the light of the world. And so how did Jesus live as the light of the world during this time? Well, he moved towards the hurting. He bound up the broken. He fed the hungry. He restored sight to the blind. He touched the untouchables and loved the unlovables. So Jesus acted as the light of the world, but he also recognized that he was not going to be walking on earth amongst us forever. And so during that time, he began to gather around himself men and women who hungered and thirsted for connection with God, he said, follow me, which is the thing that a rabbi would say to a prospective disciple. Follow me, be with me, walk with me, learn from me, become like me. And so he had gathered this group of individuals who were walking with him, and he began to train them. Now, if you have a Bible now, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. It's a place that we were a couple of months ago as we were studying through the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember when... Three weeks ago, when we were talking about discipleship, I said there are three main goals of any disciple who is following a rabbi. Goal number one, that you would be with your rabbi. And we're not just talking about for a couple hours on a Tuesday and Thursday. We're talking 24-7. You are living with your rabbi, going where your rabbi goes. When he gets up, you get up. What he does, you do. What he eats, you eat. If he stumbles down in the dust to pick up a stone, at the very same spot, you kneel down and you pick up a stone. Because you want to do what your rabbi does. You want to be like him. And the second goal flows directly from the first. As you're in proximity to your rabbi, you will naturally become more like your rabbi. More is caught than taught. So as you're in proximity, you begin to, you know, for those of you who are around somebody with an accent, when I hang out with Don Shannon, I just naturally start talking with a little bit of a different accent. When I'm around my buddy Pete, uh, who's Australian, holy moly, it's like crocodile hunter, right? Although everything that I say tends to become more Scottish brogue the longer I go. So then it's like, okay, I'm like Alistair Begg for a few minutes, which is great for those of you. That was for you, Dee. Um, so so you, you begin to speak like your rabbi. You begin to think like your rabbi. You begin to reason like your rabbi. So if somebody asks you a question, you no longer answer the way you would normally do. You start answering the same way that your rabbi would, the way you interact with and treat people is the same way that your rabbi treats people. More is caught than taught, and so you become more like your rabbi. But both of those things, spending time with your rabbi, being with him, and being like him, ultimately means to the same end, which is you want to, be, you want to do 
what your rabbi did. Rabbis would invite people to walk with them and be disciples toward the end that one day this disciple could become like the rabbi, that they could take the yoke of training and teaching the worldview that they had put upon their shoulders to help them carry the burden of life in this broken, sin-scarred world, and now transpose that, that gift of a, a, a yoke onto the shoulders of another generation who can use it as a tool to do what God has called them to do, and so on and so forth, that disciples who become rabbis who make disciples who, who become rabbis who make disciples. So Jesus, recognizing that he is not going to be here forever, as he's talking to the multitudes, he now zeroes in on his disciples that are sitting right in front of him. And remember, this is Jesus who said, I am the light of the world, and whoever walks in me will not walk in darkness. He now looks at his disciples, and in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, he says these words. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on the stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. As I have been doing as your rabbi, I am now commissioning you to do by your proximity to me your connection with one another, your lives are naturally bearing the fruit of light. Now live as light in the world that I'm sending you. Continue. Light does not simply draw. When, when I put a light in my room, it's not because I'm going to go and hug the light. It's so that I can see in the dark, so I don't stub my toe. It's so I know where I'm going. The light serves to help direct lost and weary travelers to their destination or helps them avoid destruction. As the light, we are not trying to attract people to ourselves. As the light, we are trying to lead people to the Father, the only one that can save their souls, the only one that we yearn to be in relationship with. And there are people who are lost and hurting who desperately need to find the hope that we have found. And Jesus looks at every man, woman, and child who has given their heart to him and is committed to becoming a disciple. And he says, now you get to be the light. And it's at this point that a large number of us tap out. <laughs> I'm good with, you know, having, having a relationship with God. I'll even do a quiet time once or twice a week. I'm okay being in relationship with other people because quite honestly, I want to be in relationship with people. I just, I yearn for it. But I'm supposed to do what Jesus did? I'm supposed to represent and reflect him? I'm not, I'm not Jesus. I'm sorry. He was the son of God. He was perfect. I am anything but perfect, right? I mean, the guy could walk on water. I have a hard time keeping my head above water. He could bind up the, the broken. I am broken. He could cast out demons. And man, I sometimes feel like I've got a couple of demons in my own closet. I, I am not that guy. I'm not that gal. I've been so beat up and tarnished. I have made so many choices that, that would completely disqualify me from being his representative. So I will connect with him and I will connect with others, but I'm not. You know what? You need Byron and Diane. They're way more mature than I am. 
You need, I need Jeff and Eric to do this because they're paid to be good. I'm good for nothing. And we try to pull our card. Kind of like men and women throughout history have done. Kind of like Moses did. You guys remember the story of Moses, right? Here's a guy who had everything. He was born an Israelite, was supposed to have been killed. Instead, his mom puts him in a little basket. He floats down into the hands of Pharaoh's daughter. He now gets raised in Pharaoh's household, gets all of the benefits that go with that. He's sitting pretty in life, and he blows it because he sees an Israelite who's being mistreated. And so he goes and he attacks the Egyptian um, taskmaster, the slaveholder, kills the guy, Word gets out and he goes, if Pharaoh finds out what I've done, I'm dead too. And, you know, like, like people who have gotten, like, like Adam and Eve, he runs, he hides, he skips town. And all of a sudden, this kid who had been raised in Pharaoh's household finds himself out in the wilderness, out in the lonely places, tending sheep. He's going, how did I fall from there to here, Right? I have made a mess of my life. I was impulsive and it was destructive. I guess this is my lot in life. And as he's walking along, watching the sheep that he's caring for, as they're slowly gnawing on the crabgrass that they can find, the little tufts that are, that are interspersed around these rocks in the wilderness, he sees this bush, this bundle of twigs that's burning the weirdest thing is it, it, it's not consuming the bush. It just keeps burning with an intensity that draws him like light does. And so he walks over to the bush and he hears God's voice. Moses, take off your sandals for you are standing on holy ground. And Moses is like, oh, I've got to get out of here. I don't belong here. God is here. I don't belong here. And God does something crazy. He takes this guy who'd blown it so big that he had become outcast. And he says, Moses, I'm going to send you back to Egypt, back to Pharaoh, because I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses goes, <laughs> not me. That's definitely not something I'm capable of doing. God, you got the wrong guy. God goes, Moses, I got the right guy, because I tell you you're the right guy. He goes, no, 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 don't you understand? I'm not eloquent. I stutter. I'm, I'm not your guy. Now, my brother Aaron, that guy's amazing. He's eloquent. He speaks. He's got that deep voice. Me, I'm kind of squeaky. You don't want me. And he keeps trying to pull himself from allowing God to use him because he does not feel equipped. He does not feel good enough. Feels a whole lot like many of us probably do in here. I'm, I can't be your representative, God. Because I'm not, I've got too many skeletons in my closet. I'm not capable. I don't have the, the tools that other people do. I, don't, I can't speak the way other people do. I don't, when people ask me questions, I won't have the answers because I'm not as intimately familiar with the Bible. I haven't got it memorized. That's not me. Do you remember, you know, Moses tries one last time to kind of, give God the forearm shiver. He, he goes, God, if I were to go and, and say, let my people go to Pharaoh, why on earth would he listen to me? Like, how is he going to believe that Yahweh, the God, you know, of, of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob sent me? Why on earth would he ever believe it? Do you remember what God said to him? He answered his question with another question. 
what's in your hand, Moses? What? My shepherd's staff? Throw it down. He throws it on the ground and it turns into a snake. And Moses is like, what? He goes, now pick it up. He's like, you pick it up. He didn't say that. <laughs> he just showed the boys the gods must be crazy. You know, so you know, in the very beginning, he's like, and he, and he grabs the snake by the tail and picks it up and turns back into a staff. And God says, Moses, this is the sign or a sign by which you can show Pharaoh that you're not just coming on your own recognizance, that you have been sent by me. And that little sign, even though it was not ultimately what broke Pharaoh's resolve, that took about 10 more plagues before his, his resolve was broken. It was still the sign that helped Moses begin to take the first step back towards Egypt to be used by God. What's in your hand? You know, it's the same question that Jesus asked his disciples when they were, it was one of those times when all of the crowds had surrounded Jesus because they wanted to hear from him. He was kind of the flavor of the hour. He was the rabbi with the mostest and they just wanted to be around him and they wanted to be fed by him and they, or they wanted to certainly be healed by him because they heard miracles were happening. I want to get me a little bit of that for my life. And so they had been showing up and, and it was starting to get late and Jesus had been ministering to people all day long and the disciples come up and go, hey, Jesus, the sun is starting to set. You probably want to tell the people to go home because they need to get something to eat. And, and Jesus goes, well, why don't you guys give them something to eat? <laughs> That's funny. Do you see how many people are here? There's thousands of them. I, I'm sure there are thousands. I can't cap past 10. But, um, you know, there are a lot of people here. Jesus says, well, what do you have in your hands? What have you got? Uh, what have we got? Oh, okay. We got like five little loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Jesus goes, that's enough. Have the people sit down. And he takes what little they have in their hands. He blesses it. And he proceeds to feed the entire crowd of people until everybody has, enough, has had enough to feel full. And then the disciples, after everyone's appetite has been sated, the, the disciples go and collect all of the extra food. And it's more in the end than when they started. And what we learn in that is that our God can take what little we have in our hands and he can use it, multiply it to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or hope. He can just blow our socks off if we are simply willing to allow him to use the little we have in our hands. And so I ask you this, my brothers and sisters in Jesus, what's in your hands? What has he given you that he might use to advance his purpose and his plans in our community. Let me give you a couple of things, okay? There's many, 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 but let me just give you three categories. First, your time. You have 10,080 minutes allotted to you each week. We're not promised another allotment. We're not even promised the full allotment for this week. But you have 10,080 minutes in a week. How, do you spend that? Do you fritter them away or do you invest those minutes? And I understand you're busy. I am busy. We live in a society that is addicted to busy. We're going to have a conversation about that beginning next week because we are such a busy people. But are you interruptible? If God were to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, that one over there, Go talk to that one. 
are you interruptible enough to be able to move there? Or are you, like I sometimes feel, flying down the freeway in the fast lane with the radio blaring so you can't even hear or notice the people that you're flying by that are hurting? And even if you could, there's no way to safely pull over to deal with them or to address them or to come alongside of them. So what do you do with your time? Second thing, each of us has talents, gifts, abilities, passions, things we enjoy doing, things that we're naturally good at, things that have been kind of worked into our lives. We didn't go looking for it, but we learned how to do it because maybe a parent didn't do it or we didn't have a parent there. So we learned how to be, you know, somebody that brings order from the chaos because your life is so chaotic. What are the things that you just naturally find that you're good at? What are the things that you naturally find that you're passionate about that you want to do? And would you be willing to allow God to use those talents that he has worked into and developed in your life or just blessed you with to do whatever it is he's calling you to do? I know Jeff has. I mean, and I'm not talking about being a pastor. Jeff loves to fish and he's good at it. You know this. If you've ever spoken for five minutes with him, he told you, right? (laughs) So Jeff, when he's not here and when he's not with his girl, Jeff is at 74th Street in Newport Beach, casting out into the surf because that is his Gethsemane, his place to go and meet with God, his place to just go and and recharge. So he loves doing that. He would do it for nothing. In fact, he does do it for nothing. And a lot of times he doesn't catch a thing and he still loves every minute that he's there. But here's the best part. Him being there... And him having some fishing poles in the water means that when people walk by, they're naturally drawn to him. Hey, what are you doing? You catch anything? What kind of rig are you using? What are you using on the, on the lines? And he naturally gets into conversations with people that then enable him to have... He gets into proximity to people that would never think to step foot into this church. Little do they know that they are coming face to face with a part of the church because we, not this building, are the church. And we are the church 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So Jeff gets it. Cherie gets it. Cherie loves to dance. She's a nurse by day, dancer or dance instructor by night. (laughs) And it doesn't matter if it's salsa, merengue, cha-cha, box step, or even the boot scoot and boogie. Cherie loves it is good at it, and loves to teach other people. So Cherie has started teaching classes in our community. And little do the people who sign up for her classes know that when they show up, they're coming face-to-face with a, you know, a part of the church. And she gets to be a light in that classroom as she's loving on other people, doing something that she loves and is good at. Donna gets it. Donna has been through a very, very painful year of watching her husband slowly deteriorate and we celebrated the fact that in the 11th and hour and 59 minutes and 59 seconds he gave his heart to Jesus and that he is at home that's the hope that we have and that is the 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 joy that she finds but that year leading up to his death was a painful year she felt very alone during a large part of that although there were many people walking alongside but people how can you understand that right if you haven't been through it Well, Donna has taken that understanding and that heartbrokenness 
and turn it around. And she goes, I, she loves to call and reach out to other people who are walking through this painful season of deterioration, of watching a loved one suffer. It's something that God has worked into her heart that she then gets to pour out and come alongside of others. So she gets it. <laughs> My buddy Frankie here. You get it. You totally get it. Frank um, is a, was a teacher, just retired a couple years ago. And so he could, you know, live the dream and do nothing, right? And could, but that's not him. And that's not, you know, I, I, everybody that I know that's retired is actually more busy than everybody who's working, I, I found, which is interesting. And Frank is busy. And Frank has made himself available to be a substitute teacher. But here's the best part about Frankie. He's not afraid now to go into the classroom and just be a Christ follower there. He's not preaching at them, but he's not afraid to shy away from conversation. So when stuff comes up, he gets to engage in it. And he gets to be the church there. Charlie gets it because Jeannie signed him up to be a a ref for soccer. How many years ago now? 26 years ago. He's still doing it and he gets to be the church there. So he then signed his wife up to be the um, office manager for us, which I'm really grateful for. The tit for tat in that instance worked out really well. Do you see that you have, you have talents, you have natural propensities, you have gifts, you have things that you can do because you enjoy it, and you have things you can do because you have felt wounded, and so it helps you actually come alongside other hurting people. Would you be willing to allow God to use your talents to put you into proximity or to use your talents to help you love and shine the light of his love into those spheres of influence that you actually and already find yourself walking in would you be willing so time talents and then obviously treasures god has given us a lot of things and i'm not just talking about our finances although that is certainly a part of it but the things that he has entrusted to our care remember the israelites God said, I will bless you, and through you I will bless all nations. They were blessed in order to be a blessing, and God says the same thing to us. You have been blessed. If you had a hard time figuring out what to put on this morning because you simply had so many clothes to choose from, you're in the top 1% or 2% in the world. If you had more food in the kitchen than you're going to eat today, again, you're blessed. If you, ha- if you have a vehicle... You're a lot further along than than a lot of people around this world. We have a lot. God has blessed us with a lot. But that blessing is not solely for ourselves to be comfortable and well-fed and safe. That that word that we love to throw around in the Christian church is if God is after our safety or is for our safety. It's like, no. Um, I I love at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, one of them... um, Lucy is sitting on the parapet with one of the beavers and they're looking out and they see Aslan who symbolizes Jesus in these stories and he sees him walking along the beach and she goes, is he safe? You know, he's a lion. Is he safe? And and the, the beaver looks at her and goes, safe? Oh, good heavens, no. But he's good. Following God, being a disciple of Jesus is not always safe. But he is good and it is worth following him because he's the only one who has the words of life. He is the only one that we can truly rely upon in a world that is constantly shaken. So would you be willing to allow our Father God to help himself to the things he's placed in your hands? And I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward.
And I want you to consider, God, during this time, as we begin to pray, these words of this song, as they begin to wash over you, I simply want you to ask yourself this question and, and prayerfully invite God to show you. God, what is it that you have placed in my hands? Where have you already placed me into proximity to men and women who have been created in your image and are hurting because the brokenness of this world has shattered their ability to see who they are. And they, they don't feel the hope that you have found. And they feel far away from God. How has he placed you into proximity to people and what has he placed in your hands? And perhaps even more important than what he's placed in your hands is this question. Would you be willing to allow God to use what little or what much he's placed in your hand to do what it is he wants to do in and through you? Let's worship together.